Good morning. You can have a seat. My name is David. This morning, I get the privilege of uh, sharing with you some things that God's been teaching me. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you up front, I thought this was going to look a little different. I thought I had a direction I was going. And then God, as he does, he said, mm, hang on, stop, stop right there. And he showed me kind of something in my own heart that he needed to show me, that he needed to remind me of, and that I, that I believe is where we're going to go this morning. Lord willing, unless he just takes me a whole different direction while I'm standing here. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to take you through a journey of how God's been working in my heart about some things that matter to us as a church. And I hope uh, you'll join me in these things that God's been teaching me. And I hope this, this is a fruitful morning for all of us as we dive into God's word. We're going to ultimately be in John 15. We're going to take a few minutes to get there. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes there because I want to help you understand some context to where I've been and then to see the context of that passage and where we're going to go. The context, first of all, is I'm not up here very often because so much of my life is spent serving our church and being part of our staff and the behind the scenes stuff because I really like having a plan and I really like knowing why something's going to happen. I'm kind of that guy that when you take the personality test, it's like people or task, task. It's like achieving or being achieving. I'm way over here on that because I'm wired that way. I I like to learn. I like to grow. I like to understand. I like to have a plan. Um, Somebody challenged me even just the past couple weeks, a couple times. We're talking about something and I'm like, okay, so how are we going to do that? And they're like, we don't know yet. And that's okay. I'm like, no, it's not okay. I don't like not knowing. I like having a plan. So that's where I am. And so you have to know that about me. If you don't know that about me, now you do. So uh, many of you do. The problem with that is that for me, and I'm not saying this is true of all of you, but though it might be, that can become an idol. Now, you might say, that's shocking, David. An idol is something that's a good thing that becomes a God thing. It's, an, it's a good thing that becomes higher than anything else. And, and, and I say that not because I've made it an idol, but because it's a temptation for me. It, it, is a, it is a place I can go with my life and with how I'm following God, it can turn into how am I doing here? What am I doing here? How am I planning this? And it can turn into something where I see myself in Jesus's words to two ladies. Uh, you're going to see behind me a passage in Luke 10. Um, and this is just setting some context for you. You might be familiar with this passage. Um, the context of Mary and Martha. Uh, some of you may be very familiar with this passage. Um, and I'm just going to read for you and, and just share a thought here. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Any guesses as to who I am? Yes, I find myself, I identify in that story when I read those words in the Gospel of Luke and when I think about Jesus talking to these two women, I find myself thinking, well, I know where I would have been. I would have been Martha. I would have been there. And Jesus says to her, stop, just come and be with me. And so as I've been on a journey and thinking through some things and a lot of what I've been spending my time on is thinking through how are we doing as a church at being a family of disciples who are making disciples? I wanted to go into this message today and talk about making disciples. And Jesus has been speaking to me and said, hold on, take a step back. Before we make disciples, we need to be disciples. And so this idea of doing, doing, doing is great, 
when it's coming out of who you are and coming out of your identity, coming out of I am with Jesus, I'm, I'm Mary, I'm spending time at the feet of Jesus listening and learning and growing and, and sometimes instinctively I want to, even when I have an idea and even when I'm like, oh, 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 I got it, God, now I want to put it into action. And so that's a struggle for me and it may be a struggle for some of you. And so today you get to join me in what God's been teaching me and I hope this is a moment for us as a church family where we can just join around the words of Jesus in John 15 in just a moment and what he taught us about being with him as a priority number one, being with him. To get there, I'm going to take us through a couple of the passages. In John 1, 1, 2 through, 1 through 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We look at this passage and others, and we're not going to go into them today, and we look at this and we know Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are one for all of time. That didn't, that's, that's part of foundational to our understanding of who God is. And so that brings us to this idea of Jesus being with God, and then it brings us back to this idea, in the beginning, what did God say? Well, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And God established this garden where man and woman were to walk with him, to be in fellowship with him. I I can't even imagine what it was probably like. I like to sometimes think about it, but, but, but I don't think I have even a glimpse of what it was like for Adam and Eve to be walking in the garden with God. It talks about that God was looking for them. This, it's this idea of this presence that, that I don't think we even can fathom because we're stuck here in between two gardens. Matt talked about that back in, in one of our prayer messages of this, this dichotomy that we're in where we're stuck between what God designed it to be and, and what will be ultimately. And we see that if we fast forward, that again in the future where God wants us to be, Revelation 21, 2 through 3 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We see again this idea of the ultimate future is being with man. God, worshiping at his feet, being before him. If you read Revelation, there's beautiful depiction of just celebration and presence and being with God. There's, it's not about action. It's not about how you got there. It's about simply being with God. And we saw that in how God created us. And we see that in Jesus affirming in Martha and Mary, hang on, don't, don't keep doing. Sit with me. Spend time with me. Listen to the teaching that I want to give you. Then go do, but do this first. Start here. And so this is where I get caught up sometimes because I know it can be a struggle. And I, and I think for some of you in this room, certainly for people we know, people all around us, we can, we can get caught up and forget. And, and when we look at our salvation, we can think, well, our salvation is for someday. Our salvation is for that future thing that I just read in Revelation where someday we will be with God. But for now, we're, we're just stuck here. And, and I want us to understand that this is, yes, it's a future salvation, but it's also a current salvation that God has called us to be with him today as well and to continue to be with him. And there's not something we're supposed to be doing today to earn our place before him. We are already with him. And that's where we're going to go today. The problem is Satan likes to attack in those areas of weakness, even when they don't seem like weakness, a plan or a strategy or doing, oh, well, you're doing them for the right reasons. Yeah, but, but what if it's, What if I'm doing it not out of the overflow, but out of my own humanity? What if I'm not doing it out of what God's doing in my life, but what if I'm doing it just because I'm able? 
And that's Satan's tactic is to use that to try to convince me that I need to keep doing and to keep going. And yet Jesus says, no, you are already with me. You are already in me. Stay with me. You have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove. We are not good enough. We never will be. God's design in sending Jesus was to change our position, not just for eternity, but today. Our salvation is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. Our salvation is that we can abide with Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none of us may boast. Our salvation is the restoration of this relationship with our King, with the God of the universe, with the Creator, so that we might walk with Him, so that we might sit at His feet like Mary did and be with Him. Yes, ultimately, when we walk with him, we look different. We act different. People take notice because things happen when we're with God. I love this in Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The they is these religious leaders, government officials, other people who, who don't know this Jesus guy. Um, and they're like, wow, what we see in these men, this preaching, this life change, these things happening have come out of them being with Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 14, it talks about Jesus said, come with me. And he, he invited his disciples to come alongside him. And it took several years. And if you trace what Jesus did with them, he gradually, they learned and they grew and then he sent them out. And that was the result that they went and they go and that we all have this idea of we are to make, make disciples. That's our command. But it took time of being with Jesus for Jesus to educate them, to bring them to that place. And, and Jesus wanted them to understand his presence, wanted them to understand who he is so that they didn't do it out of their own doing because that's the history. That's the past. And we're going to get into that in a minute here. So these men were preaching the word. People saw that they had been with Jesus. And I believe that it's important for us as a church. It's important for us as individuals to understand what it means to be with Jesus. And so for the rest of the time today, we're going to take a look at this idea of being with God, being with Jesus, and what bears out from that. We're going to be in John 15. We're going to talk about what does it say about God? What does it say about us? And how are we to respond? But before we do, we need some context. Um, we could just open it up and think that those words are going to mean something to us, but um, they're going to mean a lot more if we look at why these words were written. So before we even get there, I need you to know a couple things. Number one, this is happening, Matt just talked about this, about how this week is really significant coming out of Christ's resurrection, what that means for us as um, God's people. But these things that we're going to talk about right now, we're actually rewind right after the Last Supper. Jesus spends time with his disciples sitting in this upper room. He, he shares with them that, hey, I'm creating a new covenant. This body, this blood, uh, the, the bread and the wine that represent my body and my blood and the blood of me sacrificed, this is a new covenant. This is something new. And his disciples are like, okay. He washes their feet before they even sit down and they're like, oh, what in the world? This is crazy. Uh, he tells them that one of them is going to betray them. He tells them that one of them is going to deny him. And then all these other things are happening and it's just got to be, if I was a disciple, I think I'd be like, what is going on? What, is, what are you doing, God? And, and so the context of this passage is they're starting to understand, and yet they still don't quite know what's happening. Because again, he's told them this is going to happen, and yet they're still, they're, they're still humans like we are. And so the context of this next passage is they've left the upper room. Um, it says 
that they left. We don't really know exactly where they were, but we know that the next place that we know they end up is a garden where Jesus is arrested. So somewhere, logically, between this upper room and this garden, they're walking and they're talking. And for some reason, Jesus decides he's going to talk to them about a vine. And I think it's important for us to understand why this matters. Why is Jesus talking about the vine? It might be because they saw vineyards all around because vines and vineyards was a common part of their agriculture. That's what they grew in parts around the city. Um, it could also be because Jesus talked about the fruit of the vine and he referenced the wine that they drank as being the fruit of the vine. It could be for that reason. It could be for any number of reasons. It's not pointless. The, the idea here is that to the disciples, Jesus is talking about something that they would understand, number one, right in front of them, but number two, we'll get to in a second here, culturally for them in their past, the vine means something to them. If I said to you, we're walking along and talking, I say, hey, look at that vine. Some of you would open up your phone to that now defunct app that nobody ever used. Oh, maybe some of you did. Uh, the vine app, I, th- I think it's gone, I don't know. Um, so you wouldn't think of a, a, a vineyard, right? Like, the vine is what means nothing to us until we understand the context in which Jesus is talking about this vine. So in chapter 15, verse 1, we see Jesus says, and then his words are going to be behind me, but you can jump in there as well. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. Now we're going to stop right there for a second because we want to continue with a little more context. So he's saying that he is not just the vine, he's the true vine. Well, if you're talking about a true vine, then it assumes that you understand what a false vine might be or what a some other type of vine might be. And this is important. Again, it would be lost if we didn't understand this, that in the context of talking to Jewish people, they know that Israel was often called the vine or often referred to as a vineyard. And so in order to understand what it means to be the true vine, you kind of have to understand, well, what wasn't a true vine? And so we look at this and these believer, these men who are following Jesus, his disciples, probably would have been brought, brought back to some passage. They might have thought of some story that they heard. They might have thought of a psalm or some of these other things where we see this talking about a vine and oftentimes talking about a vine as an, in, an unproductive vine. L- listen to these words in Isaiah 5. Again, they'll be on the screen. Um, this is Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. I will tell you now what I will do to that vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. He dug it and cleared of it in stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. This idea of not producing the fruit it was intended to produce. So this idea of the vine to these disciples of Jesus, they're hearing him talk about a new vine and their their minds would immediately have gone to, well, that's common language for us. And we know that we, as the people of Israel, never were able to produce what we were supposed to produce. We were never able to live up to what we were supposed to be. And Jesus 
is referring them back with this picture of the vine to what they would have thought of in, in, in their scriptures that they would have understood. So that's why it's important for us to know that. So Jesus is talking about the vine, and that's the context in which now he's going to go forward. He's going to continue to use this analogy. He's going to continue to use this imagery, which is the way Jesus loved to talk. Jesus loved to talk in parables. You guys know that. He loves to talk in different ways so that the common man might understand it. And so they would also walk away with something, and maybe every time they saw a vine, if you think about it, would these men ever see a vine and not probably think about what Jesus talked to them about after this day? I pro- I'm going to guess not after what we're going to talk about, that the vine would always represent something to them. And so Jesus gave them this, this image, this mental picture. So let's continue reading through verse 3. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In calling himself the true vine, Jesus is saying to these disciples, I'm doing what you haven't been able to do. Yeah, all of the Old Testament talks about the vine being a failure. It didn't work. It wasn't able to work by God's design, to point towards this need for a savior, to point towards Jesus. They weren't able to do it on their own. Jesus is saying, I can do what you can't do. I can be what you can't be. And so this idea of this true vine and God's work in this is is really important imagery for them and for us as we think about what Jesus is saying to us. So he's saying, I'm the true vine. Stop striving. Stop sacrificing. Stop thinking that following that old covenant is going to do anything. I gave you the new covenant. It is through me that all of those things come true. And so Jesus is giving them this picture of that's not true of you anymore. You will now bear fruit because I'm the true vine. You're going to bear fruit in me. And this is is sounding like really good news because for these guys who understand this weight of always feeling like, hey, we're going to make a sacrifice. And then tomorrow I'm going to screw up and I'll have to do it again and I'll do it again. And this this idea, this ongoing perpetuating imagery of never being able to do enough. And Jesus says, I got you. And then he says, and I'm going to prune you. Wait a minute. This was supposed to be good news. Um, in In the immediate, we might think, well, that's not sounding so great. Pruning, if we take that imagery literally then and say, okay, well, so if I'm a vine, then pruning, pruning doesn't conjure up good images for us. Pruning is, is cutting away. It's taking off the branches that aren't working. It's, it's, it's making sure that this branch is healthy and strong. And in fact, I, I, I did a little bit of reading on this and I'm no green thumb. I don't grow things. I leave that to my wife and children. And we're trying right now. We have a garden in our backyard that we are starting. I didn't finish yet. Um, and I'm, great, I'm grateful for them wanting to do this. So we'll have some live imagery in our backyard of what this is. Not growing a vine, but... Um, this idea that it took several years before a vine would produce fruit. The, the, the vine dresser would have to spend time taking care of that vine, cutting away the branches so that it grew in the right way so that those branches would be able to yield a crop that was productive. This idea of pruning does involve pain, but the ultimate goal is to produce even better fruit, even more fruit. And, and I know this is one of those things that is such a difficult thing for us to understand and think about sometimes when we think about this cost of discipleship, this cost of following Jesus, is sometimes that there's a pain involved. But the good news for it, when we look at this passage, we see that the pain yields better fruit, yields more fruit. And so for you who are in this room and you say, yeah, I'm tired of being pruned. Hold on, there's more 
good fruit to come. You don't know what it looks like yet because that's not up to you. I don't know what it's going to look like, but God's going to do something through that pruning because that's how he works. He is the good vine dresser. He says, I'm the true vine. Hold on to me. The last thing in this third verse that we see here is that Jesus tells them, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. In case they didn't get it the first time around of I'm the true vine, reminding them of the fact that they're not. Um, Jesus is saying, you're clean because of me and because of my word. And this points us to the word of God, not to the actions of man. It doesn't say you're clean because you washed each other's feet like I told you to. It doesn't say you're clean because you went out and did this. He says you're clean because of my word, because of what I've done. And this is even pointing to what is going to happen soon. Jesus is saying to them, I've got this. I've got you. Hang on to me. So let's read this next section where he continues this idea, this train of thought. John chapter 15, verse 4 through 7 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this phrase of abiding in me is where I've connected this idea of our need to be with God is our need to abide in God. And, and this phrase is really important, but, but to start with, real quick, who's used the word abide in the last 24 hours, 48 hours, maybe even the last week? Raise your hand if you've used the word abide. That's what I thought. I haven't, except in writing it and telling other people what I'm preaching on. Um, the word abide isn't one that's in our common vernacular. So again, we need to go back and we need to think about what this means. Because if I just go on and assume you know what it means to abide, well, you're going to all leave confused. And I was going to be very confused too. So the dictionary defines it as to endure without yielding, to bear patiently, to wait for, to remain stable or fixed in a state, and to continue in a place. Each of these definitions, as well as how other parts of Scripture talk about abiding, give us this idea of remaining, enduring, and continuing. So Jesus gives us this picture of what he means with the idea of a branch and a vine is important because a branch has to remain connected to the vine or it's no longer going to bear fruit. It's not even going to be anything. It's just going to be a dead branch. And so this idea of abiding gets us on this wavelength of thinking about staying with him, staying close to him, remaining in him, continuing in him. Again, back to this idea of we're thinking about this future where we'll be with God, but today we're also with God and we're going to remain with him through that, not because of anything we can do, but because he's in us. Therefore, we can be in him. Abiding involves a choice. The choice starts with Jesus, and then it's this cycle of, and we choose to stay with him. And it's important for us to remember that we can't abide apart from him. And so I'm thinking about this, and I was trying to think through, how, how do we think about how do we abide in Christ? Well, I think it looks like this. We stay close to him by seeking after him. 
We stay close to him by being in communion with him, which means in relationship with him. We stay close to him by walking with him and accepting his care, including his pruning, because we're holding on knowing that the best is yet to come. This hurts today, but there's more coming, and God's going to do something. This list is tricky, though, because naturally, for people like me, as I've already shared with you, I want to know what I'm going to do. I want an action step. I want a list. I want to know, well, how do I abide? Give me the step one, two, and three. And we don't really have that. And oftentimes when we come up with those lists, those lists turn into legalism. Those lists turn into moralism. They turn into this false skewed version of our faith where instead of sitting at the feet of Jesus and being with Jesus, it turns us into servants of him who don't actually even know him, who don't actually know his word, who don't know what it's like to engage with him and be in relationship with him. And Jesus mentions this again in three and five so that we don't forget. You're clean because of me and apart from me you can do nothing. That's verse three and verse five in John chapter 15. I love the way this commentator put it. So I'm going to read this quote real quick. We have a tendency to turn it into an emotion or an experience. Jesus is talking about a fixed reality. He's saying, true disciples are connected to me. We are united together. Now abide in me, remain connected to me. Get your life from me. Live your life out of your connection with me. Abiding is this fixed reality of living life out of Christ, living life out of our connection with our Heavenly Father. Abiding is staying closely connected so that he is flowing through us, and that's why we see this image of a vine. Have you ever seen something growing that's not connected to a root source? No. I mean, maybe you think of some weird, some plant experiment you did where maybe for some time you were able to do that, but in real normal life, a branch doesn't bear fruit, doesn't grow, you don't see flowers. I've got I have a lot of flowers that are not on my bushes anymore because Zoe likes to pick them for us. So we don't have a lot of flowers anymore, but we did have flowers and they only came on those bushes because those branches are connected to the the core of that plant and that core is rooted in the ground and it's getting nutrients and it's able to grow. And so Jesus uses this analogy of the vine to say, hey, you weren't a very good vine back there, but you can be a good vine now because you're going to be in me. You're going to be grafted into me and you're going to grow in me. And our reality is that when we put our trust into Christ alone, the spirit is alive in us and he is then working through us. We are connected to him and he keeps us. It's this crazy thing. That's, it's part of these mysteries of God that we don't understand, but we have to hold on to that. He keeps us connected to him, which then allows us to stay connected to him, which then allows us to live out of that connection to him. We do get one glimpse of something we do in verse 8 through 11. And this is where we're going to kind of cruise into a couple things that we're going to take away. We've kind of talked about who God is, and we've talked about who we are now that we're connected with him. But this is kind of what is a result. And so it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So the bearing fruit proves that we are disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These verses tell us that we abide when we remain in his love and we remain in his love when he keeps his commandments, which is in essence, it's obeying him. We obey because we're abiding in Christ. It's this weird idea of we're in Christ, therefore we can obey. We obey because we're in Christ and it's this constant flow of man, Jesus is flowing in us and out of us and it changes everything about how we act. It's not this talking about obedience in my house where my kids don't obey because they just don't want to listen. 
because they're growing and they're learning and that's okay and this is an obedience that actually Christ is enabling us to obey because we're in him and it's this cycle. Jesus did the work so that we don't have to. And the natural outflow of this obedience is that we're going to see fruit in our lives and that fruit is the result, not the cause. And this is freeing for people like me and people like some of you probably all of you, who struggle with the need to prove ourselves. We struggle with the fact that we could earn something, that we could do something. And I know many of you have heard this message so many years of, and so many times of the years, and you think, yeah, of course, of course. I hope you hear it maybe a little differently. Maybe you look at it a little differently to think through what it looks like to abide in Jesus and have his fruit flowing out of you because of your abiding. This obedience isn't drudgery. This obedience brings God glory and brings us great joy. If you think about the goal of obedience leads to God's glory and our joy, leads to fruitfulness, leads to being with God, then obedience isn't this thing where we're like, oh, this is terrible. It's like, man, I want to obey. What does obeying look like? God says to love him and love others. Jesus says that's the new commandment. You had these old commandments. Yes, those still matter, the behaviors there, but those all flow out of this idea of loving the Father and loving others. I still don't like this idea of being pruned, but when I think about what the end goal is, when I think about what God's going to do through that, that it's going to result, not my works resulting in fruit, but his work in me, through me, pouring through me is going to result in God getting glory and me finding joy. I can get behind that. I can have something to hold on to when that pruning is happening. I hope you do too. This whole relationship is dependent on us abiding in Jesus because Jesus abides in us. We're not alone. That's the whole point. We can't bear fruit unless we're connected to the source of life, to the source of all life, to the creator of this universe. What is this fruit? This fruit's one thing we see in scripture in Galatians 5. Fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit is others who, like in Acts, say, wow, they've been with Jesus. They are ordinary men and women. They've been with Jesus. And then hundreds, thousands of people followed Jesus because of what people saw in their lives, because they were with him. So what do we do with this? Abiding life in Christ comes from obeying him. Obedience is made possible because he's in us. Okay, this is great. I can, in theory, understand these things. How do I, how do I, what do I do with that, David? And, and I've come to two simple things that aren't directly in this passage, but I think we can all agree that this is pretty clear in scripture, that we do this by praying because that's the only way we can be in relationship with, with someone who, who isn't tangibly here right now. This is our mechanism to be in relationship. Jesus instructs us how to pray. Again, I'm going to go re-preach those messages we already talked to about the importance of prayer and how praying keeps us in communion with God. And I think we also do it by knowing God's word. We cannot possibly trust the God of the universe if we don't know the God of the universe. And the best way to know him is to see the story that he has given us in scripture. So prayer and knowing God's word are the ways that we know God. It's kind of like if any of you are in significant relationship with me, the way we know each other is because we've spent time together, because you've heard my story, because you know what God's doing in my life, and I know what God's doing in your life, um, because, because I love you, and you love me. Like, there's a reciprocal, man, we want to be engaged in this relationship. It happens because we've spent time together. It's not like I just pick somebody out of the crowd and say, hey, we're best friends now. It took time to get to that point. It took effort. It took us being involved in that. And so, In this case, Jesus is saying, hey, you can't do anything. Just know me. Be with me. 
And so we can't know God if we're not in communion with him. We can't know God if we're not praying to him, praying his word, looking at his word to understand who he is and how he works. Out of that comes everything else. If we're praying and we're being filled up by the word of God, then fruitfulness is going to happen. Pruning is going to happen, yes. There's going to be seasons where you're like, man, where's the fruit? This just is terrible right now. But then you're going to see it and God's going to remind you of, oh, it's so much better because I went through this. Now I can see why that's so much better. Why this is what he was striving for in my life. When we do these things, we're going to serve. We don't go to Carolina Preserve to earn anything. We go to Carolina Preserve because we love the way Jesus loves. We go to Carolina Preserve not to gain the ability to abide, but because we abide, it's just a natural outflow. We don't do anything that we do as a church. We don't even come here this morning, I hope, because you think that this does anything for you to abide in Jesus, unless you're coming simply because you want to hear the word of God, because you want to engage with believers who are also abiding in Jesus, and together we are his family, we are his people, and we are together worshiping him. That's why we come here. We don't come here because we're earning anything or because checking that box that I went to church this week does a single thing for you. We pray in so many ways, and, and if you didn't come on Friday night to our secret church event, which was on prayer and fasting, um, I'm, and you want to participate in this, let me just tell you, like those of us that sat in that room, it was, it was so good. We went through scripture from start to finish, looking at how God's people prayed, what they prayed for, and we prayed through that. It was an incredible night. I'm thinking we're gonna do it again soon. I don't know when, because we can play it again. Um, and if you wanna participate in that, and you say, hey, I don't know how to pray God's word. I don't know why this matters. Then come to this. Come talk to me afterwards. Say, hey, put me on that list, and we're gonna do it one of these nights. It's six hours. It's intense. It is worth every minute of your time. I'm exhausted today still, because it was so long, because it never ends on time. But praying is how we abide in Christ. Being in communion with God and knowing him through his word is how we do that. Prayer is wrestling with God, like Jacob did in Genesis 32. Prayer is reminding ourselves of God's promises in his word and then reminding him of those promises. When you voice those back to God, God, you promised to give me wisdom. You promised this. We're aligning our heart with God and we're aligning his with ours and we're, we're in communion with him and he then is going to work through those things and remind us of, well, I am giving you wisdom. It just doesn't look the way you thought it was gonna look. Prayer is delighting ourselves in the Lord and receiving the desire of our heart because we have made our wants God's wants. That comes out of Psalm 37, four. And this idea that in the passage we just read, John 15, seven, it talks about that you pray the things that you wish. Well, the idea there is not I pray, hey, I wish for a new car because that's not what God wants for me. God has so many greater desires for me. If I get a new car, whatever. God's wants, when they become our wants, then we pray those things and we bring those to him and we align ourselves with him is an amazing thing. Prayer is continual. Uh, this is something that is just a really neat thing if, if you want to engage with God and think about this. Prayer isn't just before a meal or just when you're just sitting there and you close your eyes and bow your head and all those things we teach our kids. Prayer can happen like right now. Hey God, I did right over there. God, speak through me. It didn't need to be long, but I need it. I, it's my recognition of this is God working through me. How are you going to do this? And just giving it to him. Prayer is continual, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Prayer is giving thanks, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Prayer is acknowledging God's sufficiency in all things. And then our own insufficiency, as we've just talked about this morning. We could go on and on through God's word talking about what prayer, it is, what prayer is, what it looks like to pray his word back to him, to hold on to those promises Prayer and God's word happens when we are God's people. We are abiding with him. 
it's kind of scary. You can look at some of these verses, and we didn't spend time on this idea of the branches that get thrown out and burned up. And, and that's because that's a whole other conversation to have. But if we're holding on to the fact that if we are in Christ and he is in us and there is fruit happening, then you don't have to worry about that. But that is the reality, is that some of us, as Matthew 7 says, on that day many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I didn't know you. I never knew you. Depart from me. That's scary if you think of it by itself, but if you think about it in the context of Scripture, of what Christ did, of the ability that he's given us only through his power to abide in him, then it's not something to worry about because when the things that we do are an outflow, the fruit of what he's doing in us, then we don't have to worry about that. I want to abide so closely with God that when people look at me, they look at me like those guys did in Acts and say, wow, he is so ordinary, but he has been with Jesus. I want people to look at this church. I want people to walk into Northwest and say, they're normal people, but there's something wrong with them because they've been with Jesus and it flows. It just comes out. They're not just friendly. They're friendly on a whole nother level. They don't just serve. They serve on another level. They don't just care for the people in their church. They care so deeply. I've never seen that happen. And they, that reflects back on God's glory. It brings us great joy. And we can say it's because we've been with Jesus. That's the kind of church that we want to be, that we're going to be. I hope you're coming along with that. I know you are. That's why you're here this morning. I want to encourage you to pray and to be in God's word. That's, that's it. I wanted to tell you, hey, here's the three-step process of making disciples. Um, there's ways to make disciples, but it starts with abiding in Jesus and abiding with Jesus together. One of the ways we're going to do that is, some of you saw that pile out there and you were curious. Some of you picked them up, which is great. Um, this right here in my hand is the Nehemiah Scripture Journal. After the service, you are going to get one of these. All it is is the text of Nehemiah on one side and lines on the other side. And here's the idea. We're getting ready to go through Nehemiah as a church. Nehemiah is about God's people coming together for God's glory. It's God's people. It's prayer, boldness, opposition, discouragement, confession, the word, repentance. It's a whole bunch of things. We're going to be looking at these things together over the next nine weeks. It's going to be a nine-week series. It's going to take us through the month of May and the month of June. We're going to be doing that together on Sundays. But Sunday is only as much as we get out of it when you come in here, if you have already engaged with God's word, if you already looked at it, if you're letting it flow through you, if you're praying it, it's going to be so much better. We are going to be a different church because of that, and so we want to do that together. So the starting point to that is this is going to be a resource. If you don't want to use it, that's fine, but it's an idea that we had that we said that we got from another church. Um, we said this would be great if we are all going through the word each week. Everybody knows this tells you what we're going to do each week. It gives you the list. Um, so study that. Pray it. Ask questions of it. Engage with God about it. Engage with other texts of scripture about it. And then bring this in so that when we're preaching through it, when you're hearing it, you've already thought through some of these things and God's using those things together to create in us a unity around God's word that leads us to praying his word, that leads us to be just an uncommon people. It's gonna be really exciting. I hope you're gonna be here for it. Nine weeks. Don't go on vacation in June at all. Stay for this. Just kidding. Um, but it is gonna be awesome. So on your way out, pick up a copy of this. If we run out because... I did the math and I think we got too few. We'll get more this week, I promise. And so pick one of those up as you're leaving today. Being disciples or making disciples starts with being disciples. And being a disciple 
isn't a product of our fruitfulness. It's a product of abiding in Christ. Abiding leads to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness leads to joy. All these things lead to God's glory, but it all starts with Jesus calling us to himself and us being in him. We want to be a church that makes disciples, yes, We want to be on mission. God told us to make disciples of all nations. We want to be a family of disciples making disciples, but we can't make disciples if we don't know how to be disciples. So if you leave here today and you are a follower of Jesus, I hope you remember three things. I've tried to summarize what I've said this morning. I didn't interspurse the points. I hope you got some things out of it. But here's three points that I hope you leave if you are a follower of Jesus. I hope you leave with the point that Jesus abides in you so that you can abide with him. Not the other way around. We can't do it on our own. Hope you leave knowing that we abide with him through obedient prayer and through studying his word. And number three, abiding fruit. Abiding produces fruit, not the other way around. Again, Jesus abides in you so that you can abide with him. We abide with him through obedient prayer and through his word. And abiding produces fruit, not the other way around. And if you are here today and you're saying, I don't know this Jesus in this way. I'm not abiding in him. I hope you heard You can't do it on your own, and that's a good thing. And he invites you into that. And so I'd love to talk with you today. There's other people around you. Maybe you came with someone, and they'd love to talk with you about that. You were invited into that abiding relationship with Jesus. Our goal as a church is to be so steeped in prayer, so enthralled with God's word, and so aware of Jesus' presence in our lives that God's pruning is yielding more and more fruit for his glory because we are with him. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's where we're heading. I hope you're with us. I want to pray for us now, and I want to pray a passage of Scripture first. Part of abiding in God's Word, as I've just talked about, is knowing God's Word. And we can't do that if we're not in it, and so we're going to pray this. We're going to pray a passage we actually just talked about a couple weeks ago. We're going to be in Colossians 1, but just bow your heads with me. I'm going to read several verses and just pray for God to do something in our midst with this. Heavenly Father, from the day we have heard, we've not ceased to pray, asking I asking that you will fill us with the knowledge of your will for all spiritual wisdom and understanding in us so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing you and bearing fruit and increasing in your knowledge because we are strengthened by your power and where it's according to your glorious might. We ask for your endurance and for patience with joy. We are giving you thanks because you have qualified us. Through Jesus alone, we're qualified to share in this inheritance of the light. You've delivered us from the domain of darkness and you've brought us into your kingdom through your beloved son who gives us redemption, who has forgiven us. You are the image of the invisible God. You are the firstborn of all creation. By you, all things were created through heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through you and for you. You are before all things and in you, all things hold together. You are the head of us, this, the body of Christ, the church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything you might be first. You might be preeminent for in in you, all the fullness of you In us, all the fullness of you was pleased to dwell. We thank you that you dwell in us. You are with us. And we ask that you would reconcile us to you. Continue to reconcile this world to you. Use us in that process, whether here or in the days to come. We thank you for the peace that comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. Do these things in us. Make us a people that look just astonishing because of the fruit in our lives that comes from abiding in you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.